What's the worst fairy tale you've ever heard? Uh, Did you know, for example, the original Rapunzel uh, has the prince trying to rescue her? You know the story, she lets down her hair and he keeps coming back to her and all the rest of it. And then at the end of the story, she lets down her hair and it turns up there's actually a, there's a witch at the top and she's taken off her scalp and he dies. That's the end of the story. Yeah, it sounds a little bit random, doesn't it? In some early versions of Little Red Riding Hood, Little Red Riding Hood gets eaten by the wolf. That's the end of the story. Um, I think we'd agree they're pretty rubbish fairy tales. What's the moral? What's the lesson? What's it supposed to be telling us? There would seem to be no point, would there? Well, some people think of the Bible as a series of fairy tales. Not in that they're not true, though they believe that too, but that the stories are there just to give us a series of moral lessons. Those people in general, I would say, probably haven't actually really read the Bible. Because as we look at the passage this morning, for example, uh, we'll see that actually that doesn't really work. Think about it this morning as we go through the passage. If this was a fairy tale, if there was a moral to this story, what would it be? If it was there to teach us about lying, for example, what would it bear to be teachers? Uh, what it teaches about lying? You might be surprised uh, as we go through. So let's have a look then at, at the story. That's what we're going to do this morning. The story first, which is basically Abraham goes down to Egypt. And then we're going to look at some principles we can get uh, from the story. There are lots of things that are going to surprise us in this passage. And the first is Canaan the desert. Canaan the desert, verse 11. Have a look again uh, with me. Sorry, verses 10. uh, Verse 10, sorry. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Therefore the famine was severe in the land. Now the first surprise that we get here is that the promised land uh, here is in famine. Abraham's basically just got there and immediately there's not enough food. Uh, The land that God is giving to him suddenly doesn't seem so great, does it? If you think about it, that's the first thing we find out about this land. There's a famine. Some people have suggested that maybe it's a sign that God is beginning to empty the land of the people, preparing it for the conquest in the future. Some have suggested that by the time Joshua gets there, there aren't actually that many people in it. But we're just not told. All we're told is that there's a famine. Now, that's not uncommon. Actually, there'll be a couple of times in Genesis where there'll be famine in the land. Canaan depended on the rain coming down. It was dependent on uh, the seasons. But not so Egypt. Egypt depended on the Nile, if you think about it. That's basically what Egypt was. That's why it was there. And they actually depended on the river. And the the source of the river was hundreds of miles to the south. So Egypt could be a good place to sort of weather a famine in those times. Because actually it managed to survive. And that happens a couple of times uh, in the Bible. If you remember in Egypt... Uh, Sorry, with Joseph, he goes down to Egypt, doesn't he? His brothers go and join him because there's a famine. And Joseph has all those things about skinny cows and you know the story. But Egypt was the logical place to go. Especially if you remember last time since uh, Abraham has been heading south uh, all the way through the country. So he's already heading in that direction. But Egypt is not the land that God was showing Abraham. That wasn't the promised land, was it? But Abraham goes anyway. And you notice there's no commentary on whether that's a good or or a bad choice. And often we're found with that in the Bible, aren't we? It doesn't really tell us that this was the right thing to do, this was the wrong thing to do. But either way, he goes down to Egypt. The next surprise comes with Abraham's decision when they get there. And he's really Abraham or Abram, 
the deceiver. Have a look at verses 11 to 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Abraham tells Sarai to go uh, to take part in a great deception. He tells Sarah, Sarai, to say that she is his sister. Now we saw last time that is partly true. Sarah is his half-sister. But what she's not to tell them in no uncertain circumstances is that she's his wife. Why? Well, because we're told that she is a beautiful woman. Her husband tells her that she is a beautiful woman. Take note, uh, gentlemen. Uh, But kudos to to Abraham. He knows how to compliment a 65 at least year old woman, doesn't he? Um, We might be thinking he's being overly cautious. You know, thinking, well, you know, or maybe, maybe just he thinks his wife is beautiful. We all, we know that, uh, that there's the way that that goes sometimes. But actually, by the way things pan out, it does actually seem as though that is the real case. She is a beautiful woman. Now, some of you, not all of you, some of you <laughs> will be thinking, well, hang on, how can an Egyptian or the Egyptians, why would they want with a 65 year old woman? We've already said last time that she would have been virtually past the age of childbearing anyway. Well, firstly, can I say that women in their 60s can be very beautiful. So, for example, guys, if your wife is over 60, you're supposed to nod then, yeah? (laughs) For example, that's Linda Carter. She played Wonder Woman, if you know who uh, who that was. Not, Not the most recent one, we're talking the old one. She's 63 in that picture. Uh, or how about this? That's Kim Bas- Basinger, Basinger, I never know how to pronounce it. She's 65 in that picture. <coughs> Jerry Hall, uh, there at 60. So actually, you can have very beautiful women in their 60s. It's not such a strange thing. But also, secondly, it depends on how old the person who's finding you beautiful is. So we're not told how old the pharaoh is later on. So, for example, with Jerry Hall, she's married to Rupert Murdoch. And he's 86, so she's his younger woman uh, that he's got, and still very beautiful with it. So we don't know how old Pharaoh is later on in the story, when he accepts Sarah into his harem. And thirdly, the word beautiful might be a bit broader than we think as well. Uh, We already mentioned the skinny cows, didn't we, in the time of Joseph? Well, the fat cows that he dreams about are described as beautiful, the same word. It doesn't normally translate it that way, uh, but it can be used of a cow. Um, So it might be a little bit broader uh, than you might think. So what I'm saying here is that it's not implausible implausible, um, that his wife would be beautiful, that can describe her in that way. But either way, this doesn't excuse his deception. He ups the stakes with her, doesn't he? He sort of guilt trips her a little bit. You know, if, if this happens, then they'll kill me, but you will stay alive. That's what he's saying to her. If you really love me then you'll lie for me. That's what he's saying. But if he pretends Sarai is unmarried, then she runs the risk of ending up with another man, which is exactly what happens in the next verses. Have a look at verses 14 to 16. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princesses, uh, sorry, when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, 
they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Here we really see Sarai the defiled. Sarai the defiled. Sarah gets noticed. Uh, her, her name gets mentioned to Pharaoh. And she's brought into Pharaoh's house. In other words, she's, uh, she starts to live with him. She's brought into his home. Probably as part of his uh, uh, group of women that he would have had as his, his wives or his uh, sort of court. And that was common practice for kings at the time to have this sort of court of, of women, of wives that they would have. Now when this occurs later on in Genesis, we're told that no sex takes place. We're told that the, the person in question is kept from sinning um, and God steps in beforehand. We're given no such reassurance here. In fact, in verse 19, Pharaoh says that he's taken Sarah as his wife. And that seems that actually that was uh, quite a normal relationship, if you like. He's actually uh, had her as his wife. And still, in the midst of all this, Abraham stays silent. He doesn't speak. And in fact, he does really well out of the situation, doesn't he? If you look at verse 16, he gets all that stuff, doesn't he? Donkeys, camels, servants, sheep. All those things. But Sarah doesn't get quite a good deal out of this, does she? She shouldn't seem to get such a good deal. Without being crashed, she's basically been pimped by her husband. That's what's happened. She's gone in and has to sleep with Pharaoh, and he's ended up with all this stuff. She's basically been abandoned by her husband into the court of Pharaoh. It's not very nice, is it? But God has not abandoned her. God steps in. And we see that in verses 17 to 19. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Here we see Pharaoh the dupes, don't we? He's been deceived by Abram. And God sends plagues on Pharaoh. That sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? This is why we've called this uh, the pre-Exodus, or one of the reasons. Because a lot of the things that will happen later on in Exodus happen here. Pharaoh gets plagued in his house for the way that he's treated Abraham and his family. Pharaoh somehow knows this is due to Sarai and now seems to know that she's Abraham's wife. We're not told how. Again, in the later account, God tells uh, the person in question personally. We're just not told here. But actually, Pharaoh has been duped, hasn't he? He's been tricked into this. And Abraham comes across as really quite pathetic, doesn't he? You notice Pharaoh is doing all the speaking. He's saying, look what you've done. Why have you done this to me? What's Abraham's answer? Nothing. He just stands there in silence, seemingly. And in the end, it's Pharaoh who tells him just to go, get out of his land, and leave. It's fascinating, I don't know if you noticed, but all the way through the section, Sarai, uh, Sarah, or Sarah isn't referred to by name. She's just called his wife, the wife, the woman. Woman and wife are the same word uh, in Hebrew. As if to hammer it home, actually, this is really, really unjust. 
She is his wife and this is what has happened to us. It hammers home the absurdity and the sinfulness of the situation. So Abraham has defiled his wife, deceived an innocent party, brought suffering on his house. And now he'll get his comeuppance, right? Abraham gets his comeuppance. Let's have a look at verse 20. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Gets his comeuppance? Wrong. He leaves with more than he came with, actually, doesn't he? There seems to be no consequences to Abraham's awful deception. Actually, think about it. Who was the person who got in trouble for it? It was Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the one that got the plagues, wasn't he? Not Abraham. But of course, Abraham's learned his lesson, isn't he? He knows that, you know, this is just not the kind of thing that you do. Well, no, he hasn't. In fact, he'll do exactly the same thing in chapter 20 with similar results. And what's the lesson anyway? If you do this awful thing, if you deceive people, if you, you know, give your wife into a, a, a Pharaoh's court, you come away with more stuff than you went in with. What sort of a lesson would that be? But, you know, of course, he'll pass on a better example to his children, won't he? Wrong again. Isaac will do the same. In fact, worse, because he'll pretend that Rebecca is his sister, and she's not his sister at all. If this is a moral lesson about deception, then it's a rubbish one, isn't it? Let's face it. It works. He actually gets away with it, and actually goes away unpunished. It's the other party that get punished. So what on earth is going on? Well, the answer is that Genesis wasn't written to give us moral lessons. It wasn't written to give the Israelites moral lessons as they read it at first from the hand of Moses. If you want morals from Moses' time, go to Exodus or Leviticus where you have the laws. But Genesis is there to explain God's dealings with humanity and his special people. And it's there to show us principles rather than precepts. Principles which will help us know how to live. Principles that will help us know how to please God. But not the sort of easy precepts that you might say, well, don't lie, it will turn out bad. So what principles do we see in our passage this morning? I'd like to suggest there are three principles for the Israelites and for us. The first is that blessing comes despite moral failure. Blessing comes Despite moral failure. As we were talking about earlier with the children. This is not the sort of story that you write if you want to control people. This is the opposite story that you write, isn't it, if you want to control people. But it's a reminder that God has always functioned by grace. Grace, as we said earlier, is getting what you don't deserve. Well, we certainly see that with Abraham here, don't we? He gets more than, uh, he gets way more than he deserves, doesn't he? He doesn't deserve anything. But yeah, he ends up with amazing blessing. God has just made these amazing promises to Abraham, hasn't he, at the beginning of the chapter. And Abraham shows almost straight away that morally, he isn't worthy of what God has given him, of such amazing blessing. But that doesn't stop the blessing coming, does it? God deals with Abraham by grace, giving him what he doesn't deserve. You see, he even leaves with more than he came with. And we need to understand that too. For us, the same is true. Blessing comes despite moral failure. 
We need to be reminded of this again and again. Not to excuse sin or or to make an excuse for sin. But actually to remind us that grace is there for us. Now if you're investigating Christianity this morning, this might sound quite shocking to you. It is one of the most shocking parts of Christianity. But we see it throughout the Bible. God saves sinful people. If you look on the back of your notice sheet, you've got Romans 4 verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Hear that? The one who does not work, does not do works, but believes. Who are they believing in? The one who justifies, makes or declares righteous. The ungodly, the wicked, the mean, the awful. God does this. He saves wicked people. He saves ungodly people. So if you think this morning that you're too bad for God, you're not. God saves ungodly people. If you think you're good enough already and you don't need God, then we have a problem. But if you think you're too bad, actually you're probably closer to the truth than you think. Because actually, God saves ungodly people. And it's our faith then that counts before God, not our behaviour. Not that our behaviour is meaningless and without consequence, don't hear me wrong. Our actions do mean something and they do have consequences. But our actions do not save us. And as Christians, that doesn't then make us Teflon Christians. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, the idea nothing sticks to us. The same grace that saves us changes us. If we're unchanged by God's grace, then we're unsaved by God's grace. We're saved by faith, not works, but living faith shows itself in works. But our relationship with God remains one of grace, just like Abraham's. It continues to be one of grace even after we're saved. So that even after moral failure, blessing can come. We are blessed even when we fail. I know uh, lots of people have that problem with that big question that they have, can bad things happen to good people? I think I have a more of a problem with the other side of it. How can good things happen to bad people? When I look at what I'm like, when I look at my sinfulness, and think that God could possibly bless a person like me, and yet he does. And that's the teaching of the Bible, that he blesses ungodly people. So blessing comes despite moral failure. We see that here in the story of Abraham. There's another thing, though, that we can learn here as well. Those who dishonour Abraham are cursed. Those who dishonour Abraham are cursed. The Israelites needed to know this. If you remember, part of the promises that God gave to them uh, last week was that those who bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonour you, I will curse. That was back at the beginning of chapter 12. The Israelites needed to know this. Because actually they were the descendants of Abraham. They were Abraham's seed in in some sense. God had made them like the litmus test of the world. So think about it. With with the Egyptians and Abraham, well, the Egyptians crossed Abraham, however unknowingly. And they ended up cursed. They ended up with plagues. In the end, all the belongings that they'd uh, given to him counted as nothing because they'd slighted him by taking his wife, even though Abraham was complicit in that. The Egyptians had crossed him, 
and they've been cursed. Well, the Israelites needed to hear that because the Egyptians had crossed them. They'd taken them into slavery. And they too had been cursed. In the Exodus, God will send plagues against them to get them out of Egypt. So the Israelites have become what Abraham was. If people cursed them, they were not left unpunished. If people blessed them, they were not left unrewarded. And that will be crucial for the original readers to know as they stand on the edge of the promised land to go in. They have the divine protection of God. God associated himself so much with his people that to make an enemy of them was to make an enemy of him. And you did not want God as your enemy. So those who dishonor Abraham and those who dishonored the Israelites would be cursed. But for us, we must think this through in the light of Christ. Those who dishonor Christ are cursed. Rather than rushing to apply this to ourselves, we must remember that Christ is the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the ultimate seed of Abraham, the true Israel. And we see that litmus effect in Scripture, not so much passing to us, but passing to Christ. So John 3.18, again on the back of your notice sheets. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does believe, does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Here is now the litmus test for the world. Dishonour Christ by not believing him and you make an enemy of God. Believe in Christ and you have a friend in God for life and beyond. It couldn't be any more stark, could it? It couldn't be any more binary. Our eternal destiny then depends on not how nice we've been or not been. Not depends on what ceremonies we've been through or how much we've given to charity. It depends on this alone. Do you believe in Christ? Have you entrusted yourself to him and turned from your sin to follow him? Our relationship with Christ is the deciding factor in our life and eternal destiny. And we see it here beginning in the way that the Egyptians are cursed for taking Sarah. For the way that they dishonoured Abraham and are cursed for it. Well, if we dishonour Christ, we're cursed for it. But most of all in this passage, we see, uh, last of all, that leaving Egypt is a good idea. Leaving Egypt is a good idea. I've said all the way through our Genesis series that the book of Genesis was written to convince the Israelites that leaving Egypt was a good idea and pressing on into the promised land is a good idea as well. Well, this is where we begin to see this even more clearly. This is the first exodus we see in scripture as Abraham and his family leave dangerous Egypt. It's easy to forget, isn't it, that Abraham lied because he was scared of being murdered because his wife was beautiful. Think about living in that kind of situation, living in that kind of land where you risk being murdered because you have a beautiful wife. Egypt is a bad place and always has been is what he's saying. That's the message to the reader. Abraham lied, but he lied to protect himself. However misguidedly, I'm not saying he was right to lie, but his motive was self-protection because it was a dangerous land. So it's a good thing then that Abraham leaves. Partly because it's a bad place, but partly so that he goes back to the promised land. Could you imagine for a second, what if God had not stepped in here? What if God hadn't played 
Pharaoh's household. What would have happened then? Well, Abraham could have ended up staying in Egypt, couldn't he? He looked quite comfy there. He'd got his camels, he'd got his uh, sheep, all the different things. But God had much, much better things planned for him than to stay in Egypt. So God moves him on, doesn't he? By sending these curses, these plagues. Because Egypt was not a good place to be. And it's the same for us. But for us, we need to think this through in terms of our old life. Leaving our old life of sin is a good idea. And it still is a good idea. Our old way of life is a bad place. And always has been. It is a good thing that we've left our old way of life. Sure, it might have been more comfy. Sure, we might get nostalgic sometimes. But then so did the Israelites. Uh, Remember how awful it was in slavery? You know, they they were desperate to get out. But what do they think once they've gone into the wilderness? Well, again, on the back of your notice sheets, Numbers 11, verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. I think that must be a very strange salad that they were eating in, in Egypt. But do you see how they're sort of rose-tinting the past? They were slaves in Egypt. They were being killed. Their children were being murdered. And they are, but you know, we used to have such great fish and melons and cucumbers. and They get nostalgic about something that was awful. And we need to remember with the Israelites that actually our old way of life is not worth going back to compared to what we have. Sure, we have hardships. We're pilgrims and strangers, as we saw last week. But leaving our old way of life was the right decision. Listen to Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We need to remember that our old selves were crucified with Christ on the cross. That we're now no longer slaves to sin. It's a good thing that we've left our old way of life behind That what we once counted as gain, we now count as loss. However hard that new life is. Sometimes we can forget that, can't we? We can start to sort of sugarcoat and rose tint the past. But a golden future is better than a rose tinted past. Even if it means that our life at the moment feels quite blue. When our lives feel like rubbish fairy tales, actually it's still worth remembering that we have left our old way of life, and it is a good idea. We need to remember that really that slavery in the tower, like Rapunzel, is is behind us. We need to remember that the wolf belongs to the past, not to the future. Too often we can dwell on the past, can't we? Either as something that we're tempted to go back into, or as something that we can't let go of. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can leave the past behind us. All that we used to build our lives on. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. We've no need to go back. We don't have to. Our future is much brighter. In Christ we we have all that we could want. All that we could lead. So leaving our old way of life was a good thing. And it remains a good thing. And we need to remember that. So let's remember God's grace. And honour Christ by believing him. And let's put the past behind us, counting all that was gained to us as loss. Let's pray. Father God, thank you 
for bringing us into a relationship with you. Father, thank you that we can leave our past behind us. Father, help us when we're tempted to go back into our own way of life. Father, when we're tempted back into sin. Father, help us to remember um, that you have brought us out of it for a reason, and that's a good thing. Help us to remember that our old selves were crucified with Christ, and help us to live for you instead. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.